This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. The magnificent story of God's redemptive work through Christ comes alive in a fresh way with the ESV Audio Bible, now available with new voices, including Conrad and Bayway, Jackie Hill Perry, and Ray Ortland. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or visit esv.org to learn more about these and other new audio features. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast. In spring 2023, TGC released five new debates as part of the Good Faith Debates video series, featuring prominent Christian thinkers discussing some of the most divisive issues facing the church today. On today's episode, we're featuring a debate between Jay Kim and Patrick Miller on the topic of churches and technology. Pastor Jim Davis from Orlando Grace Church moderates this debate. Let's listen in. Welcome to TGC's Good Faith Debates. The Good Faith Debates are a series of conversations where we bring together people to have conversations about contemporary issues of life and culture, sometimes issues that are confusing, challenging, even divisive, uh, in hopes that you will learn a little bit about the issues and how to, how to engage in them. My name is Jim Davis. I'm pastor of Orlando Grace Church, and it's my privilege to be able to moderate these debates. The topic for today is technology. Technology is changing at a rate faster than we've ever seen before. And the question, should the church be quick or slow to embrace these new technologies? So with me today, I have Patrick Miller, who is pastor, podcaster, and author of Truth Over Tribe. And I have Jay Kim, who comes to us from Silicon Valley, also pastor and author of Analog Christian and Analog Church. Thank you both for joining us today. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, we'll start with you, Patrick. What is your perspective on this issue? Uh, well, my first perspective is that Jay's going to have to use stone tablets for the entire evening <laughs> since he's defending the other side. Uh, no, in all seriousness, it's great to be here because Jay and I have actually become friends out of this, and we've had some fantastic conversations on the topic. And so I'm going to start with a story that might sound like I'm defending the other position. I promise I'm not. It was about three years ago. A couple comes into my office, older couple, and the wife is crying. And the husband puts his arm around her and he's telling her it's going to be okay. But he's wrong. She's not going to be okay because she just lost her mom, but not to death, to Facebook. Three years before that, she got her mom onto Facebook. She goes from being Facebook illiterate to a Facebook junkie. She goes from being a great grandma who's liking all the photos of her great grandkids to liking all QAnon photos and all QAnon posts. She goes from being a godly woman who told her daughter, you know, love your enemies, kill them with kindness, to saying, no, the world's about to end. We've got to fight the culture war. And all this happens in a very short period of time. And Sherry, she tried multiple times to reach out to her mom, to help her see what was going on, but she couldn't get her back. And she's crying on my couch. She's saying, I lost my mom to Facebook. 
And when that happened, I kept asking, how did we get here? How did this happen? And to answer that question, we've got to roll back the clock about five years ago. Five years ago, uh, inside of countries like Iran, China, and Russia, there were foreign nationals that were propping up American Facebook pages and Facebook groups. And uh, 2021, MIT report found out that it got so bad that 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages were run by foreign troll farms. They were specifically targeting Christians. The largest one of these groups had 75 million Christians inside of it. And the strategy of these groups was pretty straightforward. Nine out of 10 posts were, you know, totally milk toast, you know, kind of evangelical-y type stuff, right? It's just uh, cursive Bible verses over mountain landscapes, a few C.S. Lewis quotes there and there, all the stuff that you'd expect. But then there was that one out of 10, the misinformation, the disinformation, the conspiracy theories. And because they're looking at this group and saying, oh my gosh, there's 75 million other Christians on here. I should trust this. Obviously it's credible, but it's not. It's a foreign run troll farm. And so these groups, they were able to take people captive. And it made me ask the question, why were they targeting Christians? I mean, you can target a lot of different people. And the answer is actually really simple. They wanted a large demographic that had a dearth of content because they knew if they could, if they could give them content, if they could engage with them, they could destabilize democracy in our country. And that's why they targeted Christians, which should make us ask another question, which is why was there such a dearth of content? We have to go back another five to 10 years to the time period when Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram were all spooling up. And if you look at what Christian leaders and Christian pastors were saying at the time, for the most part, the message was either this stuff is a fad and I can ignore it, or on the other hand, it was this stuff's a distraction and it would be noble to ignore it. And so as a result, that's exactly what Christians did. In other words, here's the tragedy. We created a vacuum that the trolls, that the foreign trolls came and filled up and then they took millions and millions of Christians captive to quote the apostle Paul with false and empty philosophy. And then those people uh, in the long run, in some senses, lost the heart of their faith. 75 million people in that single group. Remember, 19 out of 20. And those people are people like Sherry's mom. And that's how we got there. And so when I think about that, it makes me realize that right now in the church, um, we aren't just uh, two steps behind, we're 10 steps behind. We, we are in a, a rough spot. You know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that we need to be prepared to preach the word in season and out of season, but we were not prepared for this season. This little device in all of our pockets uh, it, it is the most powerful discipleship tool ever invented, or at least in the last 500 years since the printing press. It forms people, it shapes people. And the idolatrous systems and powers of the world, they're happy to utilize it. But here we are 15 years after its invention debating, should we? <laughs> and it's not just that. American Christians and Americans in general, they are living in that digital Babylon. But where's the church? Where are the Christians? Why is there such a dearth of engagement and content? And so I think right now we're facing maybe the most profound missional moment, missional question of our generation, and perhaps again of the last 500 years, which is how can we, to misquote Acts 13, 36, how can we be faithful in our digital generation? How can we be faithful in this particular moment? You know, does, does the spirit only work on analog networks? Or does the Great Commission have a little asterisk after it? You know, you know make disciples of all the nations, but... Don't do it on the internet because we know what happens there. It, these are the questions we have to face. Maybe most fundamentally is a question, can the Holy Spirit subvert this technology? 
Now, I want to make a few really quick caveats so people know what I'm not saying. Uh, the first caveat is this. Digital can never replace the vital in-person work of the church. On this, I think we have tremendous levels of agreement. It cannot replace it. But I do think that digital technology can enhance what happens inside of the church in some very profound and tremendous ways. The second thing I would say is this. A lot of people in my camp, they like to say that technology is neutral. It's just a tool. You know, you can do whatever you want to do with it. I vehemently disagree with that. Technology is not neutral. The internet is not neutral. And in particular, social media is not neutral. These were designed with a purpose, with a goal in mind. And they didn't have our best interest in mind when they designed them. So when we're talking about this technology, we have to talk about can it be subverted because it's not designed to do things for our good. And I think that the answer to that question is yes. I think if we look throughout Christian history, we can get a really clear-eyed answer. We can see multiple forms of non-neutral technology that the Spirit came in and transformed. And the fundamental thing that I would say here is not that these are all the same thing as digital technology, but there's some examples. So I'll just give a few really quickly. Number one would be roads. The Romans, they, they created the world's largest network of roads with one very non-neutral purpose. They wanted to efficiently move their violent imperial war machine wherever they wanted it to go. Paul subverted that technology. He used it to plant churches and to spread the letters that eventually became the New Testament. Uh, another example, maybe more modern, is the printing press. When the printing press was invented, it was largely used to create gossip pamphlets and spread conspiracy theories. So sounds like something else I've heard of. But uh, <laughs> moving forward, it, what happened? The reformers, they subverted it by printing vernacular translations of the Bible and spreading them across Europe. It was a non-neutral technology, but again, we saw the Spirit do his work. Uh, another one would be radio. The early days of the radio were incredibly bad. Uh, one of the most popular speakers was Father Charles Coughlin, who used it to promote uh, pro-Nazi, pro-fascist, anti-Semitic commentary for over a decade. But Billy Graham saw the potential, and he subverted the technology, using it to call people to repent and believe in the gospel across the country. And so I realized that these new technologies, the internet, social media, and whatever comes after it, they're not the same as those things. And yet I really firmly believe that the spirit can work to subvert those technologies and that he's going to work as he's always done through people who see the possibilities and are willing to work out in the end how we can do these things together. And so I realize we have to ask some important questions about how we should engage. We've, we've counted the cost of engagement. We've been counting the cost of engagement for 15 years. I just wonder if we've counted the cost of disengagement. And I wonder if the cost is Sherry's mom. And I wonder if the cost is millions of Christians across our country who are being fed false information. I wonder if the cost is billions of people across the world who could be reached for the gospel if we would use this technology, if we would harness it for good. I think if we did that and we did it to the glory of God, and if we found people who were ethically sound, theologically informed, practitioners of digital ministry, we could see some real amazing transformation, not just in our country, but across the globe. Thank you, Patrick. Jay, what's your perspective? Yeah, well, first I'll say, you know, despite our differences, um, I, I love that we're talking about this. I think we agree, all of us probably agree in uh, just the pervasiveness and the ubiquity of digital technology. It's here, it's not going away. So we have to address the topic. A um, couple of thoughts come to mind for me. First, I, I, I want to make clear I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-digital technology in, in, in the same way that I'm not anti-car. Um, I am for a car driving children safely to school in the morning. I am against a car driving 60 miles down a little neighborhood street where kids are playing. 
right? So I'm not for or against. I think, again, much like a car, you know, there's a reason why I wouldn't let my seven-year-old drive a car. It doesn't necessarily mean that she'll never drive a car. In fact, the hope is someday she will drive a car, but there's a very good reason why she doesn't drive one now. There is a potential danger that's latent within the technology that she is not prepared for or ready for. So that's the first thing. I'm not anti-technology, um, but I, I do think that engaging technology, and in particular new technologies, digital technologies, with as much care and thoughtfulness um, and caution in some cases, is just so vitally important, again, for a number of reasons. One that Patrick has already mentioned, that um, they are non-neutral technologies. They have an intention and a design. Um, they, and, and they pose, I think, a really fascinating co complexity in that, you know, unlike cars, uh, you get into a car because you have an intention to get from point A to point B. Um, unlike a hammer, you only pick up a hammer when you're going to nail something. Um, unlike those other tools, uh, digital technologies, again, have a ubiquity, a pervasiveness to them in that they are constant everywhere all the time. And in any moment of boredom, we find ourselves leaning in. There is a sort of inherent um, addiction, an addictional, uh, an addictive property to them. And so that leads us to the question, you know, should churches be fast or slow to um, lean into and embrace new technology? And I want to say the first thing I think is there, there is an inherent fear baked into going too slow particularly in a culture that is as progress-oriented and speed-oriented, fast-moving as ours, falling behind is akin to falling off a cliff, you know, this sort of descent spiral into irrelevance. And I think a lot of churches and church leaders fear that. And then the assumption, conversely, the assumption is, well, if we can quickly um, and innovatively lean into new technologies, then we can get ahead. We can go fast, we can go first, and that'll put us ahead. But I, I would actually argue that we have already evidence to the contrary. Um, Lifeway Research uh, noted that by April of 2020, a month into the pandemic, basically every church in America, 97%, had an online service up and running. And then Barna Research, just a few months later in the summer of 2020, just three or four months into the pandemic, found that um, the most digitally native amongst us, millennials uh, and Gen Z, um, who had gone to church prior to the pandemic, they were leaving the church and disengaging from online church at the, the highest rate. And so those who are most comfortable with digital were the ones that were watching and engaging online the least. So I, I would actually suggest that as the church has rushed headlong into new technologies, um, whatever is sort of at our disposal, the results have been mixed at best, and I would say disastrous at worst. Um, overall, church engagement has de declined, congregations, you know, Sherry's mom, fracturing over online content has increased, and the public witness of the church, I would argue, has suffered because of those things. And some would suggest, I think Patrick would suggest, that it's because the church is not innovating enough, right? And this line of thinking proposes that mere presence um, online is not enough, that we have to begin going first. We have to lead the way. We have to innovate and subvert these new technologies. And I, I would admit that there is some redemptive potential in this line of thinking, but I do think that there is an inherent problem 
in that it does not adequately take into account what we've both mentioned already, um, the inherent design of these new technologies. So as one example, social media, which is a, it's a prime example because again, it's huge, it's significant. Social media is designed for many things, but one thing it's designed for is scale, right? It's designed for reach. Um, the power of social media in part is that you can tweet or post one thing and with that one thing you have the potential um, to achieve scale at a rate that no other technology would have allowed any individual in years prior. And so this is why so many of us are addicted to the sort of slot a slot machine pull of the refresh lever because essentially we want to see the promise of scale and reach fulfilled and so we pull that lever how many likes how many retweets how many shares scale and reach i would suggest are about being noticed by as many as possible as near or as far as possible and this is actually a wonderful approach i think when it comes to content and content is important, right? Christ-centered, gospel-saturated content is necessary, vitally important. Um, but I would argue while content can inspire and inform, uh, content alone cannot transform. It cannot transform Sherry's mother. It cannot transform the people um, at my church uh, whom I love and serve. Um, and of course, it is God alone and his goodness and his grace who can truly transform a life through the regenerative work of his spirit. But I think most often God chooses to do that transformational work um, through the medium of real human beings. And so in other words, I think the most effective way to reach an unbelieving and hurting world is not scale, but what I would call symmetry, right? Individual Christians and collective church communities aligning their energies together toward a handful of those within the ripple effect of their life, family, friends, coworkers, local towns, neighborhoods, you know, workplaces, schools, et cetera, and leaning into those lives uh, as personally and as intimately as possible. Now I would say that symmetry is not about reach, it's about rapport, it's about relationship. Um, it doesn't focus on being noticed by as many as far as possible. Uh, and instead, I think symmetry helps us to notice as many as possible within our proximity. And to be sure, this is slow work. It's far slower than social media. It's far slower than scale. Um, it's, it's certainly much slower than um, the ability to get one piece of content out there to the masses. It doesn't work that way. Uh, but when the church grabs hold too quickly of new technologies, thinking only of potential possibilities and missed opportunities, I believe the church leaves herself susceptible in two key ways. First, embracing new technology too fast, I think, leaves the church susceptible to being subsumed, again, by the overwhelming power and design of the technology itself, um, sabotaging even our best efforts toward redemptive subversion. Uh, we've seen this in recent years as churches rushed to social media in the wake of a variety of cultural moments, making statements too quickly, taking sides. And they were all in, in good faith attempts to represent Jesus, but often we saw them fail miserably and unnecessarily alienate entire segments of our congregations because of a lack of nuance and faltering back to square one. And two, I think the other danger is, and maybe most important, um, is that embracing new technology leaves the church susceptible to losing sight of the very real thing in our midst, not potential or 
possibilities out there, but the seemingly mundane and ordinary um, gift of proximity right here. Um, yeah, we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but that journey always begins in Jerusalem or in Silicon Valley or in Missouri or in Florida, wherever it might be, wherever we are. And so I think that, that one of the dangers of new technology is that it has a tendency to constantly shift our gaze always toward the distant horizons where real people feel and look like an easily reachable mass. And when our gaze fixes on the, when it fixates on the horizons, I think again, we are susceptible to losing the gift of proximity and the invitation to build rapport and relationship with those right here in our midst. Um, Jesus says in John 15, right? Abide in me and I in you and a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And this is gardening language, right? Gardening is slow and it's steady. It's often boring. It's often unspectacular. And it certainly is not about going first, nor is it about going fast. Um, in fact, it is in many ways the antithesis of speed. Uh, gardening requires patience. It's mostly watching and waiting, um, but there is no other way to bear healthy fruit. You can't microwave an orange. And so it is with the church. And for me, I think in recent years, I have found immense confidence and comfort in contemplating the long, slow, steady arc of God's unfolding history that in his sovereignty and his faithfulness, he has led his church through wars and famines and pandemics before. Um, he has gently and effectively led his church through countless cultural shifts and technological advancements, and that has not and will never change. And my belief is that under his care, even when we go slow, um, we're never behind. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. My question, my first question, it's going to be for you, Patrick. Obviously, here there is a caution from being on the forefront of technology. When you consider how untested these new technologies are, uh, you know, you've said that we're 10 steps behind. Is there value sometimes when you consider how untested the technologies are and unknown and how we've not discipled our people into these technologies? Is there value sometimes to being 10 steps behind? Yeah, I, well, I would say maybe not 10 steps behind, but I think there is some value to being a little bit behind. Uh, in fact, when it comes to digital technology in general, the, the pioneer rarely wins. Who here uses Yahoo to search? Who here's favorite social media is MySpace? It, being the first rarely I'm wins. I'm no longer on AOL Instant <laughs> Messenger. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you've got mail. You know, that, that, that kind of proves the point, though. Yeah. The goal for the church is not to be a technologist. Our goal is not to be pioneers of new technology. I think my fear, and it's interesting, because obviously, Jay, you're coming from Silicon Valley, so you're actually surrounded by tech people. I live that in Missouri. <laughs> I live in Missouri, so I'm never around those kinds <laughs> of people. And so, and so that, you know, our context might shape some of our perception with this. But as I look at the church right now, we are not wobbling on the precipice of the future. We're tripping backwards over our own feet into the past. And so I'm not saying let's get uh, up to step one or even step two. I'm okay with step three, four, or five. The stuff that we're doing on our team as practitioners of this kind of ministry is not uh, really exciting. It's, it's very, very basic down, down the pipe uh, marketing that really you could read any book and find out a little bit about. 
Uh, and yet we're still light years ahead of most churches. We're still light years ahead of most Christian content creators. Um, and the heart, again, behind this is that what we've seen is that when we utilize these very simple, very inexpensive tools, there are enormous results. In just the last year, uh, we've been trying to reach de-churched people, which is the quickest growing group of people walking away from the church. And it's a massive, massive problem. You know that. <laughs> and we, we thought, how do we get these people back? And so with a very small advertising budget and with a very simple strategy, we started using email devotionals and we created target audiences to uh, go after those people. And what we discovered was that about 10% of the people that we were able to reach online would end up in a real in-person church context within the next year. About 10% of those people were going to come. And so this year, we're, we're on target for bringing about 1,000 new people who were de-churched back into churches. And, and that kind of highlights the point. This is where I'm saying enhancement is the name of the game. It's not replacement. We talk about live streams. Live streams are a form of replacement. What does a live stream do? It's a broadcast of what's happening on a stage or inside of a church. And it's trying to replace what's happening there. I don't want to replace it. I, we don't actually do much with live streaming, to be honest. What we want to do is enhance what we already have and bring people into the church using the technology that we have. So I see it as a synergy between the two, not, not picking between one or the other. That's really helpful. So Jay, you made the comment, content alone cannot transform. Yet you, you, you write articles for TGC, you're here debating something that will be delivered um, through, through technology. Do you believe, I mean, you must believe that your efforts here can, can contribute here. Do you believe that by the Holy Spirit's activity that, that, I mean, your efforts can be used to transform lives through technology? Or is there a contradiction there? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, content is important. I want to make that clear. What I am not saying is that content doesn't matter. Just show up to a building, do life with another human being, and everything will be well. That's not what I'm saying. I would also say, you know, analog embodied presence is not the answer to everything. We didn't always have digital. This is like maybe a 25, 30 year old phenomenon for us. The church had many problems long before the internet. So it's not like analog showing up solves everything. Um, content is, is vitally important. I think the only thing, the, the argument I'm trying to make is that content alone is incomplete. I think that content at its best can inspire. It certainly can inform. And inspiration and information, no, right knowledge, all of those things matter a great deal. But I think um, the Christian life is a life call, that, that needs to be li lived. You know, it's an embodied life. It's not knowing the right things. It's living in alignment with right knowledge. And um, I think if we overemphasize content, 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 that's all you need. Let's get into these spaces and let's overwhelm bad content with good gospel-centered content. Again, I'm not saying that's unimportant. Like you've said, I participate in that endeavor and I believe in it. That's why I do. Um, but I believe it's one step in the direction of a transformed life. Um, it, it really does require, and I think this is where um, Patrick and I both diverge and maybe have some agreement. The goal, you know, the end of the line is to, is to make sure that followers of Jesus encounter the risen Christ within the context of other human beings who are um, attempting at least to follow Jesus and, and live like Jesus in real ways. Do you feel like that's in line with what you were just saying? <laughs> this, is, this is what we always end up laughing about because we end up agreeing in the end because I would because you're going to the same destination yeah. mm -hmm. you, you, you might be talking about getting there different ways mm -hmm. but 
but that sounds very similar to what you were saying about replacement. Yeah, I mean, as a pastor, the thing that I see change people's lives is, of course, content, and it's also community. You need both of them, and one without the other rarely does the trick. And, and again, that's why it's so key for us to say that the goal is not to replace community or to replace analog connection. It's to supplement it. This was a few years ago. Home Depot hired a new CEO. They bring him in and he says, I'm going to be all about online. And so the project he takes on is changing their website so it'll bring uh, more traffic onto the website. And everybody's freaking out. It's like, we're going to end up hire, you know, firing all these people who are in our stores. You're not building any new stores. This is going to be terrible for the brand. Well, what he did was he worked really hard to make sure that everything they did on the internet brought people into the store. You could, if you had a return, you could return it at the store. If you wanted to pick it up same day, you could go pick it up same day at the store. He, he multiplied foot traffic inside of the building tremendously during this period. And it was because he was using the internet to get people inside of the four doors of their Home Depot stores. And that's, again, how I want to see the, the, the internet right now is, is, do we have a way to use the technology that we have to get people inside of community and inside church, especially in an increasingly post, post-Christian culture where people have to take a lot of steps before they ever show up inside those doors to begin with? So what are some ways that you see the church misusing technology right now? <laughs> well, I, I think there's countless ways. Um, here's what happens in a lot of churches. They go out, they read the best marketing books out there, and they just baptize it, and they just they, they just recreate what they see there. Uh, so, for example, there's a guy named Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary V. He's a very famous marketer. And his approach is essentially how to create a celebrity, you know? And so I see people come into the church, and they take his approach, and now their goal is to turn their pastor into a celebrity. Well, that's not promoting Jesus. And again, it, by the way, it almost entirely focuses around the live stream, the replacement of the in-person with the, with the digital thing. And, and, and so that's an example of if your goal on social media is to turn your pastor into a celebrity, that's incredibly problematic. But the reality is that the threat is not how the church is using it. It's how other people are using it and how that's shaping people inside the church because we just aren't using it very much. All right, so you bring up a really good point we're not looking to make our pastors celebrities, hope, hopefully. But Jay, you said, um, you talked about the risk of the potential out there distracting us from the mundane, ordinary calling of proximity right here. So as a pastor, my primary focus is Orlando Grace Church. As pastors, you know, we have a primary focus outside of our family and our own faith. So, but we now have all these other opportunities to engage with our own church and the broader community through podcasting or YouTube or whatever it is. What are some warning signs that a pastor is maybe tilting into a bad area when we may be uh, forgetting our primary focus that we're called to? That's a great question. I think any time the word brand is involved in anything with the kingdom of God, um, you've created uh, competing values. And it's not necessarily even that you use the word. I think if anything sort of smells of brand and brand building and establishing brand, I think that's a key warning sign. And, and I think this is where Patrick and I actually diverge. And maybe it's because I cannot see it yet, but it is difficult for me to imagine that... Um, you know, success, and in particular, measurable metric success on social media, for example, can be achieved without some form of brand building. Now, I, I say this in some ways as self-indictment, right? I, I Some of my work is semi-public. 
So you could make the argument, well, Jay, you've written this article for that you're on this video, right? That, that are you building a brand? So, yeah, I mean, I, I will readily admit I live within the tension of that, but I love what you said, Jim. I, I try to, to think of myself and sort of center myself on that reality. I think we were talking before we started filming that primarily I see myself as a follower of Jesus, as a husband and a father and a local church pastor who's called to love and serve the people within my proximity. Now, because of the digital realities in which we live, certainly we have some digital expressions of our church and we have a variety of reasons for that. Um, but but I, I just, I try to be really careful about brand building. Again, not to say I do it perfectly, but but that's where for me, I think leaning too hard, too fast into digital, into new technologies at our disposal, um, I'm just not sure that the human heart uh, and I'm growing increasingly sure that the human heart is not conditioned for the platforms that are at our disposal and what they offer us. I just, even, even the most faithful amongst us, I think, um, yeah, the reach and the scale that they offer us, we just leave ourselves really vulnerable, I think. Well, there are sadly many stories to support. Yeah, that's right. What you're saying in just the past 10 years. So Patrick, you said that the internet cannot replace the vital in-person localized functions of the church. Can you be more specific about what those functions are? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I find that tremendously easy. Uh, you cannot watch a live stream and tell me you're having the same experience as standing shoulder to shoulder with someone. Now, I want live streams. We have shut-ins and people, at, at, at play, they cannot access our services if we don't put it online. There are people who come to our church who've never walked inside a church. They're terrified of doing it. And so they just want to see what's happening on a screen before they come in. For all those reasons, I love it. You know, if you're on vacation and you want to watch church, I mean, there's worse things you could do on vacation than watch church. However, watching church is not the same thing as worshiping alongside other people, hearing their voices together. Now, again, I, I, I want to be cautious, though, because the minute you walk into the most traditional church in Birmingham, the minute you walk in that church, you are surrounded by radical technology. We don't think about it that way. But once upon a time, people didn't sit on pews. Once upon a time, preachers weren't up in pulpits. Once upon a time, they didn't have hymnals. They knew the songs, and so their eyes were up. They weren't down inside of the book. They weren't sitting down. They were standing up to hear. They didn't have sound amplification. When you start thinking about the radical technologies that are right inside, those cars that are outside, you just have to walk to your church, and now you can drive wherever you want to. And so we have all these other analog technologies. Air There's air conditioning. I mean, yeah, that, I don't want to get rid of that. Um, <laughs> all of these technologies are present in every single church. And I only say that to say, Look, when you're watching it on a screen, something very different is happening. I want to acknowledge that. And yet, I, I don't want to be overly skeptical or, or pretend as though uh, what we see as being non-technological today, uh, it was technological 100 years ago, 150 years ago, or whenever those things were introduced. So you do have a live stream at your church? Yes, okay. we do. And, and you are discipling people to tell them this is a lesser experience? Well, you know, so I, I actually really hesitate to start telling people that it's a lesser experience. And here would be the reason why. For that person, again, who is... Because you kind of just did say that. Well, I'm saying it here, yeah, right? Gotcha. So if, if I'm talking to a friend of mine who has been going to the church for 10 years, and he's telling me, yeah, you know, I'm done going in person. I, I love watching in my pajamas. I'd say, hey, that's, that's great. I'm sure it's awesome watching your pajamas. You, you need to come to church. But if I'm talking to a college student 
who's never come to a church before, and he tells me, hey, I've been watching your church on live stream for the last month, I don't go, hey, you know, that's great. You really need to cut that out because yeah. that's not the real thing, you know? Or if I'm talking to the shut-in who literally can't come, I'm not gonna say to them. And so we're cautious up front because we wanna have a space for process. Yeah. But again, we have designed our entire technological apparatus to get people inside the doors. What we do in our newsletters, on our blogs, on social media, we have shown time and again, that is, that is the top lead generators, the thing that's bringing most people to our in-person events. And so again, we've, we've designed a structure, we've subverted the structure of, of what's happening in social media, and we've designed it to bring people in person. And, it, and we've seen it work. And so because it's working, because we're seeing people show up, we feel confident that we don't necessarily have to broadcast, don't just watch the live stream. Do you think it would be different for the church that did everything, same philosophies, but decided instead of live stream, we're gonna record, put it on the next day with all the same values? Uh, you know, I, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's, there's nothing different for the person who's watching it except for when they can watch it. And again, because I think people want to be a part of church on Sunday morning. Again, I'm thinking of the challenge. I'm thinking of the people who wouldn't realize I can watch church afterwards. Uh, for the, all those reasons, I would want to keep it on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, and again, I think there's perfectly good reasons for some people to shut off the live stream. But I, I don't want to live in a city where there's no church with the live stream. How does that land with you? Live, the live stream centric conversation. Yeah. You know, our church has a live stream, which I take a lot of flack for, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, the analog church guy has a live stream. That was a, a pandemic and post pandemic decision we made. Um, I heard a, another church leader recently say uh, the live stream or the online service, whatever you want to call it has become the new lobby of the church. And that is the primary and, and really internally, at least the only reason we've kept our live stream is that as we've tracked it and we have tracked it, um, new people who actually walk through our doors and show up in person, they will say on average that they have watched the services online between three and five times before they ever show up. So we, we've discovered, okay, not having an online service or streaming the service in some form or fashion would be akin to essentially destroying our lobby and going parking lot right through the doors into our sanctuary, which would be an incredibly jarring experience for a brand new person who doesn't know where they drop off their kids and all those sorts of things. So we've kept our live stream service, um, but I will say we talk about it almost all the time. Uh, for the same reason, the concern that we also, again, we've measured this as well through some um, some data we've collected from directly from our people. It is we we believe that it's um, it's having a formational effect on our people, and we do not know yet how to parse the two out to be able to communicate to those who are not yet with us and not yet comfortable being with us in person. This is for you and then to communicate to those who are in their pajamas because it's just far more convenient to sort of have church on in the background while you make pancakes on, the, on Sunday morning and then get ready for the football game or something. We wanna be able to communicate to them, this is, this is almost nothing. What you're doing is almost nothing. There's a reason some churches call it on demand. That's right. That's yeah. right. It's like Netflix, you know, and you think about your Netflix queue, you've got 400 different shows and movies and you watch two minutes of the first one and it's kind of boring and you move on to the next and off it goes from, from the queue. Well, that has a formational effect. We begin to think about church as content, you know, and we 
the way we think about content in the digital age now is that there is and always should be an endless stream of options. Nobody, nobody gets Netflix because they have two shows. They get it because they have two million shows or whatever the number might be. And I think that that's of deep concern to me. So we're still navigating those waters and trying to figure it out. Well, in your defense, we're not talking about cutting edge technology and live streaming. This is something right. the church has been using and wrestling with for 15, really some since the mid 90s, if they had the capabilities yeah, and the money. Right. So you're, it's not inconsistent with the argument you've been making. Yeah. I am curious. I thought his Roman roads uh, analogy was really compelling. Yeah. So was the printing press. But the Roman roads st stuck with me. How did that land with you? It is a compelling argument. I will say, um, you know, social commentators, social scientists, Jonathan Haidt is one of them, have re written recently and compellingly, in my view, as, as I've seen it, the difference between new technologies in the digital age and previous technologies like automobiles and roads and the printing press and such, um, even television and radio, is that digital technologies change so rapidly that it does not give us the necessary time to assess um, its full impact on culture and society. And I think that is the danger. This would be akin to if in transportation technology, we went from horseback riding to you know, a car to the Tesla um, within a matter of 12 years. We just would not know how, as a culture and society, we need to adequately, um, you know, consider all of the effects, all of the impacts. We just wouldn't have the time. Yeah. And so I think that's the concern, that, that the parallels sort of um, are inadequate in my mind because of the speed and the, the rate, which is why, for me, my argument is not... Um, to become a Luddite, run away from technology. Again, I'm not anti-technology. The argument is to go slow, that it's okay to go slow. We need to create the necessary space between us and the technology happening, all of the chaos sort of happening before us. We need enough space so that we can see the long arc of technology's story in the digital age so that we can have, again, as God by his spirit moves in us and gives us eyes to see sort of all of the impact um, that, that's unfolding. How does that land with you? What are your thoughts? <laughs> I, I, well, I actually agree with a lot of what you said. And again, my point is not that we should be uh, first movers or that we should be you know, right on the precipice of right. whatever's coming next. Uh, my point is that we need to, uh, if you think about the digital world as an infected body politic, it needs antibiotics. You have to do something to solve the problem. And again, this goes back to Sherry's mom, but we are on the precipice right now of artificial intelligence that's going to radically change the face of how information works. We are really one generation away, and generations, as you just said, are becoming very, very short, so we're probably talking two years, uh, from the ability uh, for someone to take a story, write it into a text box, press enter, and then the AI produces 300 different news stories based on what you put in there that look very credible, that can be spread across 300 different websites by these same troll farms that I've been talking about. And so determining what's true and what's not true is really difficult. We are currently at the point where I can type into a text box something that I want to see on a video. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's there. So artificial intelligence, as it's changing things, it's going to make our ability to discern what's true, what's not true, 
all the more difficult. And so the mission I think pastors have to have is they have to now be talking to Christians about, hey, one, don't live your whole life online. I think it's an incredibly important message. But two, the life you live online, you have to live intentionally. But if I'm going to tell you to live your online life intentionally, I better be giving you the stuff you need to live that intentional life. I think about churches. There's a church called Quorum Deo that does a midweek podcast where they discuss what happened inside of the sermon. That's just for their people at their church. It's a wonderful way. It's just like in the old days when a pastor could walk around the town and visit with everyone and see how they were doing. If we can create podcasts and content that they can actually go and engage with and choose to trust over uh, the fake stuff, over the uh, news pundits, over all of the trash that's constantly coming into their feed. If we give them the good stuff, there's actually a chance that we not only will be discipling throughout the week, but that they won't be discipled by all these other things. I'm just, maybe I'm a, a overly realistic or, or, or too pessimistic. I don't, I think if our goal is, let's really get people off the internet more. I mean, I just wanna say good luck. I mean, good luck to myself. Let's get them off the internet more. Yes, let's try, but let's also give them what they need to be healthy on the internet. So Patrick, one more for you. Jay uh, mentioned that quick adoption of technology has harmed the church's witness in some cases. And certainly we've seen reckless usage of social media by Christians and how that has harmed witnesses in certain ways. How do you respond to this? Is the missional potential of technology greater than the possible reputational risk? <laughs> well, I suppose it depends who's behind the keyboard, if we're going to be honest. I, I, I agree. There are Christians who are doing great harm. The way these non-neutral technologies are designed right now uh, is, is the, the companies want to keep you on their platforms. And the way they do that is by giving you emotionally engaging content, in particular outrageous content, content that causes anger. And that means that the algorithm is going to prioritize content that's extreme. And so what's happened right now is that the Christians who are causing the most harm, they actually don't know how to use the internet. They just have a nice algorithm that's highlighting their stuff. They're, it's lifting it up to the surface for everybody to be able to see, but they don't know what they're doing. They're just being outrageous. And of course, yes, that causes, that causes harm to, to, to the church. It causes harm to Jesus' reputation in our community. But that's why it's so key right now. If we who are not living in those extremes but want to be thoughtful, winsome, charitable, kind, have a different face on the internet, if we can figure out how to use those algorithms as they stand right now and get our content in front of people instead of that content, when these algorithms change and they are constantly changing and the day will come when the outrageous stuff gets pushed down, in fact, that's where everything is headed at the moment, the people who have figured out how to give good content in the existing system, they'll be elevated up to the top. And again, the goal here is not creating celebrities. I think, or I pray what's going to happen is, is tens of thousands of very small scale platforms reaching broadly their local communities using the internet. And again, we're already seeing some of this stuff begin to pick up. So yes, there are risks. Yes, the algorithm takes those worst people and brings them up. But no, I, I don't think that that outweighs the need to figure out how to work in this new environment. Hey, I've talked to a lot of pastors who have in 2020 and 2021 had to take the biblical peacemaking discipleship skills that they had been teaching in normal life and begin to say, oh, we've, we've got to apply this to social media use because we have people getting in fights publicly inside the church about all kinds of things these days. I read an article in the Orlando Sentinel last year that said the average attention span for an American adult has dropped from 12 seconds <laughs> in the year 2000 to eight seconds today, making, officially making our attention span lower than that of a goldfish, nine seconds, which if you watch Ted Lasso might be interesting to you. This lower attention span is directly linked, according to this article, to the rise of devices in our hands. 
So if that is the context that we live in, what implications does that have on discipleship? Do we need to adjust to that new reality or do we need to push back on it? Uh, can I say yes? <laughs> All of the above. I, I, think, I think we do need to push back on it. And one way we push back on it, by the way, is by creating substantive long form content that people can engage with. If you want people to have longer attention spans, you're going to have to give them some stuff that's has a longer attention span required. On the other side, I think we're already adjusting to it. Short form content is the king on Instagram, it's the king on TikTok, it's the king on YouTube, and you're seeing more and more Christians adjust to that reality. Now, on one level we might say, how in the world can you make the gospel that, that small, that short? And most of these videos are longer than eight seconds. And yet, I, I see the other potential. There are a lot of Christian TikTokers who are doing some amazing things. I, I just met a guy the other day who had no connection to church, no connection to Christianity, but he watched this Christian TikToker and he liked it, and the algorithm is designed to take you down whatever rabbit hole you want. It gave him another Christian video, and then another, and then another, and another, and within four months, he's at a PCA church. This guy never thought about Jesus before. Now, I, I'm sitting there thinking, praise God, those Christian TikTokers were on there to take him down that rabbit hole because if they weren't, he'd be going to a very dark place. So yes, let's do long form. Yes, let's try to help people extend their uh, attention spans. And yes, let's do the short form stuff too if that's where they're at. I mean, where would the Apostle Paul be? I, 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 I don't know if he'd be on TikTok. It's kind of hard to imagine. <laughs> but I kind of wonder, you know, the, the, the TikTok to the Romans. What would that be like? You could ask him one day. <laughs> I'll ask him one day. I think he would be there, though, communicating and reaching people in the digital Babylon. He would figure out a way to share the gospel with them on their Areopagus, even though it's something that we might feel really uncomfortable with. Do you have any response or agreement, disagreement to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the design of social media platforms like TikTok and increasingly so where Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, where they're headed, it is getting shorter and shorter. The attention span is decreasing. And I find that really problematic. Um, and I'm, you know, Patrick, you said something earlier that I, that I found really interesting, that if something is sick, you need an antibody. I think where we diverge is I, I'm, I'm sort of interested in why we're sick there. And is there the possibility that we can live in a place where we're not as sick, just not exist in, so again, not a Luddite, I'm not you know, uh, under the guise of everyone's gonna throw out their, their phones and not have the internet or anything like that. I just think that you know, our sort of content information diet needs to change. Our consumption needs to change. The other problem with that is I think uh, the way these platforms are designed, the lines between creator and consumer get really blurred. I think that's why it feels so social in some ways. There is always the constant possibility, I could also be a creator. And I think in some ways that can inherently pull out of us, um, you know, really ungodly uh, nature that, that just is gonna work against our formation into Christ-likeness. So, yeah, I think, you know, would Paul be on TikTok? Uh, maybe he would, but he certainly could not pen Romans on TikTok. You know, there wouldn't be enough time and there isn't enough space for the necessary nuance um, and the breadth. So you talked about the, the fact that, you know, people who are, you know, in your camp here, they're going to feel left behind. There's going to be a fear of missing out. Yeah. There just will be. 
So what do you do to pastor your people through that FOMO and let them feel okay in that? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is um, relevance matters less than you think it does. What matters more and what matters most in pastoral ministry, whether you're actually a pastor at a church, you know, serving on staff or not, just as you as a follower of Jesus, pastor people, rapport and relationship at the end of the day is what really matters. You know, when um, someone's husband is dying, uh, they're not going to go to YouTube to look for a video to encourage them. They're going to call the person they know, the person that can show up at the hospital. You know, you can't share a meal on TikTok no matter how much you try. So the, that's what I would say. You know, you are where you are for a particular reason. God has given you the gift of your proximity. And the calling, primary calling, is to serve that proximity and the people within your midst really well. Patrick, you brought up AI. So AI is quickly is a quickly developing technology. What are the principles we need to have, we need to sort out, to have in place in order to navigate questions about how much AI can justifiably provide help in pastoral work, writing the sermons, doing the research, care coordination, communication? I mean, because the story you just told uh, about one use of AI could, you know, you write up something and put your theology out there and say what kind of book you want to preach through and all of a sudden all the sermons are printed for the year. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually quite feasible to imagine someone typing in, uh, write a sermon on Romans 12, 1 to 2 in the style of J. Cam, and all of a sudden it's read J. Kim's books and it just wrote you the J. Kim sermon that you wanted to preach. I, I, of course, those are interesting ethical questions that we're going to have to explore. It's not plagiarism. It's also not actually your work. Um, and there's a long history, by the way, in pastoring of people using, you know, prefabbed outlines. This has become a debate even right now amongst, you know, what, 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 what qualifies as a, as a sermon that's done in the right way or the wrong way. So, I, you know, I don't know if I have any principles at this point. What I would probably change the question to is saying the threat of AI is not, you know, what happens when you're, whoever does your, 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 your images starts, you know, using artificial intelligence to create video. <laughs> it's like, that's an interesting question. Can you put those videos on your screen? Is that somehow wrong? I don't know. I think the far more important question is how are we uh, creating the uh, antibodies inside of the people in our churches to be able to identify the misinformation and disinformation that's going to be created by this artificial intelligence. And maybe of equal importance is realizing that artificial intelligence isn't in the future. When we talk about the algorithm, we're talking about AI. These are neural networks, they are machine nodes that are that are studying you, that are creating a model of you so that they can sell you to companies, so that they can sell you goods, and so they can prep you to buy those goods. We like to think that we're not, you know, fifth graders who uh, wouldn't, would be able to resist if someone was manipulating us, but we can't. The AI is already at work manipulating how we think and what we do. And so that's, this is why I say it's so critical, both for Christians to create content that can be engaged with online, but also for Christians to understand how those algorithms are working and use them for good. I, I, again, I've seen tremendous stories, tremendous things happen of people's lives being transformed by Christians who use those algorithms to reach people who were far from God, to reach people who were de-churched, to reach people in different countries. I mean, right now, the Iranian church is exploding. And the crazy thing is, if you talk to someone in Iran who's become a Christian and you say, hey, hey who discipled you? There's a high chance they got discipled on Zoom. 
That's how it's happening. And if you want to find out how they heard about Jesus, again, it's happening through a lot of this technology. And so, so that's why for me, it's like, yeah, we can talk about how is AI going to affect what's happening inside the church doors. The far more important question is not what's happening in the church, what's happening outside the church, because guess what? That's where most of our people spend their lives and their days. If we aren't there and if we don't know how to use it, we've given up. So Jay, you talked about the danger of embracing technology too fast. Patrick, you said that we're not in danger of doing this because we're so far behind. So I just, I, 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 want, I sat yesterday and I just, I wanted to make a list of really how much has changed in 20 years, just, just to really just flesh it out myself. And I'd love for you to hear y'all do two things as we finish. I'd love to hear just how you process the church going through such big changes. So more a, a heart level, not necessarily picking apart each, each of these. And then second, I'd like you to tell me what's next on the horizon, do you think, for the church to have to battle? So in the last 20 years, the world of Bible distribution has fundamentally changed with Bible apps on smartphones. Words of songs are mostly on screens now and hymnals are disappearing. Every church has a website explaining who they are and what they believe. People can click a map on that site and know where to go and how long it'll take. The world has access to both great and heretical teaching in a way that it never has before through podcast apps, YouTube in the palm of our hands. A skilled communicator preacher can now be made into a live hologram and preach in dozens of places at the same time, maybe never even seeing the people they pastor. Giving has gone mostly online. Zoom and other sites uh, now allow instantaneous communication with missionaries to your Iran point. Missionaries now get to talk with family and friends back home. Mobile kid check-in and training, cell phones, Facebook, and text messaging has made a pastor available at all times. I can't imagine being a pastor before a cell phone. Through websites like Take Them a Meal, we can now organize in minutes ways to provide for families in need that would have taken hours or days 20 years ago. Through online curators, social media, and podcasts, pastors with any visibility at all experience more scrutiny than they ever have before. Social media algorithms are targeting our people with extreme views of church and culture. Through those same mediums, abusive leaders are exposed more than ever before. The church can now stay in touch during a pandemic. People can now stay at home and worship without being connected to anyone. We've talked about that. Seminary education, which we haven't touched on, is now globally available and accessible. Seminaries around the country are also now making it easier for their traditional students to never step foot on campus or meet a single professor. Again, not looking to pick, the, but this is profound change in 20 years. How does, at a heart level, at an emotional level, how does this land with you and what do you think the next, the next thing is the church needs to have our eye on in the world of technology? Whoever wants to go first. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to go first. Um, a couple of thoughts come to mind. First, I think what comes next, and we've talked a lot about content. I think, um, and I don't know, but I think maybe possibly what comes next um, it's, it's important to remember people know when content is, they know content is content, right? That's a category in our hearts and in our minds. I am consuming content, whether you consciously think the thought or not, when you are scrolling your feed, when you're on YouTube, when you're watching an online service, you know it's content. And that, um, the intersection of increasing amounts of content, whether it's good Christian content or other content, just the increasing amount of content as it intersects with 
increasing amounts of skepticism and trust, you know, and the decay of trust. Um, I, that intersection is going to be really interesting. But I also think that that, and, and maybe we're already there at that intersection. I think that that intersection offers the church an opportunity, that the way to cut through content is with genuine community that actually communes, where you realize in maybe even a jarring way, oh, I'm not consuming content here. I'm sitting for coffee with this man who happens to be my pastor, you know, with this woman who happens to be a leader in our church, whatever it might be. I, I think there's a real opportunity and it's, it's not scalable. It's just not scalable online. It's going to have to happen in these small pockets of real communities gathering together. So that's not to say, again, content is not important, but I think content is what it is. It's content. And if it's helpful, um, fantastic. And I hope, like Patrick said, that it begins to lead down a path for many who uh, would never otherwise walk through uh, some church doors to do so. Um, but I think as content increases and skepticism continues to rise, I think the church will have an opportunity in the future um, to lean into community, you know, rather than content. Uh, and then pastorally, I think for me, as I navigate change, I said it already before, I just find a lot of comfort um, in knowing that my life, however long God has me on this side of eternity, is a tiny speck. It's a little blip on the long overarching history of God. And he has loved us since the beginning. He has loved his church and he has cared for her well, despite all of our um, failures and flaws. And uh, God is faithful, even when we are not. So um, that's my hope, and I lean on that. Well said. What about you, Patrick? It's funny hearing your question about the constant change because I'm a millennial, and that's all I've ever known. <laughs> I, I have a difficult time imagining a world where this kind of rapid digital technological transformation wasn't a constant, and it actually makes me really grateful for older brothers and sisters to say, hey, slow down. This is not the way it's always been. And so I actually just wanna say amen to everything Jay just said. The church really may be the last place where people are going to find in-person love, care, community, eye contact, friendship, shoulders around the arm, uh, you know, arm around the shoulders, there you go. <laughs> uh, it might be the last place where that happens. Um, that said, I, I want that and I want something else. And that's the thing. For me, this is not an either or, and I don't think it is for you either, Jay. It's a both and. I, I, want, I want that and I want this. I've been reflecting a lot on the exiles who lived in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends. And, you know, Daniel, when he gets to Babylon, there are lines he won't cross. This is why I say, if we don't do it, there will be people who don't have ethical mores, who don't have any theological insights. They, they will go and they will do whatever they have to do to become the celebrity. They will take advantage of the situation. Daniel and his friends, they had lines they wouldn't cross, and yet they became excellent. They learned the language of Babylon. They, they learned the culture. They became the best bureaucrats that Nebuchadnezzar ever knew, and so much so that he puts them in charge of the entire province of Babylon. I think about Jeremiah writing his letter to the exiles, and he tells them, hey, you guys think you're coming back? We ain't coming back. You got to build houses. You got to build the vineyards. You got to work for the welfare of Babylon because in its welfare, you will find your welfare too. 
I think we're living in a digital Babylon. More and more of life is moving online and the people we want to reach. We, we can say that let's help Christians, please spend less time online. Amen to that. But the people who aren't in church, they are online. And I say, let's build some houses. Let's build some vineyards. Let's work for their welfare. Let's have lines that we will not cross. And I think that's what the future is going to be for the church. It's going to be both in person and it's going to be finding people who can be practitioners of digital ministry. Uh, we have to understand our, our competitors aren't the church down the street. They should have never been to begin with. <laughs> our competitors are Netflix, they're Hulu, they're Disney. They are these mega media corporations that have millions of data points on every single person living in this country. The future, I think, for Christians, as weird as this sounds, is we have to get better at collecting data. We have to get better at collecting information on people because once we have information, we can use that to bring new people into the kingdom. Once we have information, we can actually target good content towards them. But right now, we've duct taped together all the stuff that we have and no one knows how to use it. And until that happens, we're going to be in a really rough place. So what do I think the future is for the church? This doesn't sound really weird. Go get a database. Use that information to reach your people online. Add new information into it that you gather online. And again, use that to target people who are outside your church. Bring those de-church people back in. This stuff isn't rocket science. It's actually really simple. It's actually incredibly inexpensive. And if we did that, I think we'd make a big dent in some of the major problems that the church is facing at the moment. Well, I want to thank you both. You've thought this through well. You care about your people. You care about the gospel. And, and like we said earlier, I, I really believe we're going the same, we have the same destination, although maybe not the same road to get there. And you two have really embodied the heart of these debates very well. There is disagreement, but there's gospel uni unity. And I just appreciate you t giving your time and your expertise to this conversation. So thank you very much for that. And for those of you watching out there uh, via some device probably, we hope that this has been profitable to you as you think about your own life, your own con uh, consumption of online content, and more importantly, the way that you, and especially if you're a church leader, might be reaching those in your context. Thanks for listening to today's bonus episode from the Good Faith Debates. Make sure to check out the next debate. It's ready for you right here on TGC Podcast. And to watch more videos from the debates and download free resources for further discussion with your staff or small group, visit goodfaithdebates.com.